The Heinemann Podcast presents a new six-week series. Of all the tools available to the classroom teacher to mitigate anxiety and relieve depression in students, writing is a powerful one. Over 200 research studies since the late 80s have reported that expressive writing especially can improve people's physical and emotional health. So how does writing do this? And what can I do as a classroom teacher to position my students to take this verbal medicine, as author Barry Lane calls it? Join me, Liz Prather, on the Heinemann Podcast each week starting April 4th as we learn about the healing power of writing. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann is dedicated to teachers. I'm Brett from Heinemann. Today on the Heinemann Podcast, we're talking about tough conversations in the classroom. Do you find yourself struggling with how to respond to students when topics like race, gender, politics, religion, and sexuality are brought up at school? These subjects are part of our students' lives. So then, how do we create learning conditions where kids can ask the questions they want to ask and have tough conversations? Author Sara Ahmed says it begins with discomfort and not trying to save the moment. In Sara's new book, Being the Change, Lessons and Strategies to Teach Social Comprehension, she explores what happens when we step back as teachers and allow students to take the lead. She says when we welcome discomfort in the classroom, we promote student growth and deeper conversation. We started our conversation learning about the inspiration behind Sarah's book. I was reading Harvard Project Negotiations, Difficult Conversations, and I was going through it and I was figuring out that we arrive at these stories when we're talking, right? We come with these stories, excuse me, and we arrive sort of at this third story. But when we're doing that, I'm coming with all of my experience and you're coming with all of your experience and my identity and your identity and these layers of um, interactions that we've had with the world. But somewhere in there is always going to be some tension, right? And Mm. tension is a good thing. And it's just how you navigate that tension with somebody is like where you're going to get to this final point. And so I arrived at it because I I was noticing more and more that I was creating spaces in my classroom for kids to deal with that tension rather than shutting it down and just dealing with more complex issues because I was letting them, like we talk about in Upstanders, ask questions about Mm -hmm. the world rather than me telling them all this information. And so... When you look at something like we practice every day, the reading strategies, the comprehension strategies of reading and literacy in class, I thought, well, there's these social comprehension strategies that we actually have in the real world, thinking about our identity, listening to one another, seeing the humanity in others, being able to be a more informed citizen, right? So these are all strategies that we do every day through our reading, through our conversations, through our listening to people. And so this is where it came from. I mean, between that book, Difficult Conversations, and then just understanding my work in literacy and reading comprehension strategies, I yeah. thought, well, there's this idea that we're always encouraging talk and student voice and their agency. So why aren't we working through this idea of social comprehension? Mm-hmm. What do I need to be able to interact with you, to have discourse with you, to talk about something that we may disagree on? What are the strategies that we both need to come with to the table to have that conversation? So I want to come back to social comprehension, but on that point, on tension and listening and agency and having those conversations, you write in the book that it's important that we keep the focus on the students. And that's easy to slip away from because we're affected by this too. How do we do that? How do we keep the focus on the students? I've been thinking more about how we almost have to check a couple things at the door as teachers, right? 
our bias at the door, our crusader capes at the door, right? I, I, I have things that I feel really passionate and I'm curious about in my own personal life that I read about, that I care about. Is that always the thing that I need to bring to the kids, right? Mm-hmm. Because they have these outside experiences when they're not with me, that they're hearing things and they're listening and they're reading. And so I need to be asking them more what's in their news and what are they thinking about. And so we have to keep the focus on the kids because we're helping them work through how to find that tension, mm-hmm. how they're feeling, right? And so there's lots of ways I could continue to center myself. Well, this is how I feel about this. And this is how upset this makes me and, you know, all of these things. But how is that helping them? Mm. And so I think it's easy for teachers to slip into that, right? And especially when you're the the center of all the communication and some, you know, that happens in classrooms where mm. like it's just A to B and I'm giving you this knowledge, right? But we need to help kids find a place and a space where they can just talk about it themselves. I, and I can step out and kind of do the idea where you're sort of leading from behind and listening from behind as they engage in those conversations. So let's come back to social comprehension. Mm-hmm. How did you come to social comprehension? How did you discover that work? I started disagreeing with people more, (laughs) or I think I found a way, or I started feeling, I started paying attention to what that felt like Mm -hmm. more, right? So people say that we're more polarized than we have been. I think we've definitely been polarized for for decades as Mm -hmm. a a nation, but as people are having social outlets to say things and are able to put things on screens and in 140 characters and all of those things, I started almost getting a sense of how my body was (laughs) reacting to what people were saying and what they believe and people that I've known and cared about for my entire life. And so I thought, okay, well, I could completely disagree with this person or not understand where they're coming from at all. But what do I have to do to get to a place where I can hear them? Mm-hmm. Right? Even though in my heart of my heart of hearts, I don't, I don't understand where they're coming from. So mm-hmm. w- what are the things that I need to do to be able to do that? And this is about the decentering again, right? It's not about me, right? Mm-hmm. I'm bringing my story and they're bringing theirs. And so I have to step back and just be a little patient, <laughs> I think, and say, okay, well, I completely, I can completely disagree with you <laughs> or I don't feel the way that you feel about something, but I have to step back and listen to why that is. It happened because of kids, right? You start hearing kids bring things from home. They talk to each other about things. And I just thought, this is not about me. This is about all of us and how we're all like living through this democracy together. It's a skill and a responsibility in our democracy to be able to listen to someone Mm -hmm. and how that looks, right? It's not about conflict. It's discourse and debate and like our democracy, the entire experiment of our democracy is shaped on argument and discourse. We have an entire branch of our government (laughs) that should operate in a way where argument yields some sort of um, final conclusion or law. You know, it's, it's, that's where justice should come from. That's how I got there. So how do we then take this works of social comprehension? How do we get started with it in the classroom? You center the kids, you know, in Upstanders, we start the book with centering the kids identity. It's, it's, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. You, You have to be able to come from a place where you know as much as you can know about these kids and the stories that they have and what they carry and every piece of their identity that they're coming with and why they ask the questions they do and why they respond the way they do to things. And that's where you start. You start by watching, kid watching and listening as best as you can and just listening with your whole heart. You know, you have to like listen with love and like this critical, critical love with Mm -hmm. kids where you're holding them to an expectation where if they say something in middle school classes, this happens, right? They'll, They'll say something, they'll blurt out something or they'll feel really offended by something and they'll come out with 
with this conviction. And then you have to just step back and say like, wow, like where is that coming from? Mm -hmm. And be able to ask some questions as a teacher rather than sort of knowing all the answers. So you introduced us to uh, identity webs in Upstanders Mm -hmm. and you bring us back to that in the beginning portion of this book and talk about the importance of identity webs in this work. So in order for me to understand, again, this, I, I'm centering myself in this answer, I guess, and thinking about this, but in order for me to understand, I said I had, I was getting that feeling inside where I was trying to figure out what that tension felt like in my heart and my mind. I, I had to think about my own identity. What does it feel like to be the daughter of Indian Muslim immigrants in a time where positioning Muslims as dangerous, mm-hmm. you know? And so I had to go back and look at the way that I see myself, but then also well, the mirror up and say, okay, this is my self-reflection, but then how do other people see me mm-hmm. as that or just view my last name? I think with kids, it's the same thing, right? Like they have to start unpacking like all of these layers of their identity where they might just see themselves as a soccer player or as a reader, but being a soccer player and a reader helps you respond to certain things in yeah. life, right? There's a lot of things that you bring as a soccer player or a reader in the world, as a gamer in the world, you bring so much um, to how you think and experience the world. You talk a little bit about in the book how important it is for us to sit with discomfort Mm. in silence in this work. What do you mean by that? In my, uh, probably my first or second year of teaching, I used to go to the Rochelle Lee Fund in Chicago, and it was this organization that was dedicated to just bringing books to the Chicago Public Schools classrooms. And they taught us how to have group discussions, sometimes around a whole class novel, you know, at the time. And we would talk about that. And I'll never forget, like in our second professional development meeting, we were having our own book club discussion. And this is, again, it was teacher modeling, right? Mm -hmm. And we were having that own vulnerable space where we read a book together and we discuss it as a group and we wouldn't agree. But when someone said something that maybe caused a bit of discomfort in the room, things would go silent. And often as teachers, we try and jump in Mm -hmm. to save the moment or like save the silence for some reason, right? It's just this inherent thing we have. And like, we don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. So we might just say something like, well, okay, let's move on, or that's nice, or something that's really artificial, right? So they told us in that training, they said, just sit with the silence. And I'll never forget it because there's so much growth that happens in that discomfort. Again, it's almost just like checking in. It's a whole body listening, Mm -hmm. right? How's my heart feeling about this? Like, why do I get that tense feeling? Mm -hmm. Why am I so angry? And that's it. There's, There's a tremendous growth in the silence. And so I started working in my classroom with that. And the kids, you you watch people do it, right? They look down, they start playing with their pens or their papers and it's okay. And the kids started doing it too. And I watched and I was like, wow, they're thinking through this right now. Mm -hmm. So like, don't save the moment. You don't need to be their savior in this moment. They just feel a little bit uncomfortable and that's okay. You recommend in this work that, you know, teachers should really do this work for themselves first. Yeah. Why is that so important? Because I kind of learned late in the game that I wasn't doing the work myself and I don't think I was responding authentically. I think I was telling them more than showing them, you know, in, in this type of work where you do have discourse and disagreement and these discussions, I had to go back and do a little bit of the work. It's similar to when you read, a, you know, you don't do a read aloud with your class unless you read the book, I hope. <laughs> I hope, you know, to begin with, because there are going to be moments that you can then anticipate that will pop up. And so when you do the work yourself, you can feel discomfort. You can maybe perhaps anticipate moments, but you won't be able to anticipate everything. Uh, But you can say like, oh, I know the 
25, 35 kids in my classroom. I know them really well, and this is where there might be some tension between these kids or myself or just this one individual student, and you have to do the work. You really have to do the work yourself, so I hope, I hope that's my hope for this book. The book is very practical. Oh, that's a great it's, idea. it's very, it's very, I don't know how else to say it other than it's very practical. So walk us through a little bit about how the book is set up and how you sort of hope teachers will use the book. This structure that I'm using is actually, again, tied back to this idea of reading comprehension, right? As a literacy coach right now, I'm working through the workshop model all the time. And so I try to come up with a sort of formula and a framework that teachers know very well, like the workshop model, right? So Mm. the idea of modeling, you try it together, right? And then the kids go off and they try the work themselves and you're right there with them alongside conferring as much as you can, kid watching as much as you can, taking as much like formative, you know, anecdotal notes as you can. And then you bring it back together for the share. So you kind of close the loop the same way you would with a mini lesson workshop Mm -hmm. structure. And then the end really of these lessons that I write is the idea that the tensions that can come up during this. And Mm -hmm. so again, like I said, because you're doing the work yourself, I hope before you're bringing this lesson to your students is that you can anticipate what some of those tensions might be. So for example, if I'm doing an identity web, a student might just say, oh, I don't have anything to write. Like I wrote Again, I'm a soccer player, I'm a reader, I play video games, that's it. Like, I, there's nothing really different about mm-hmm. me and they don't really, you know, want to dig deep. So that could be a tension that comes up. And then there's a try this section with each of those tensions and like what you could try. And really a lot of it is what teachers do every day. And that's kneel down beside them, have a conversation with them, listen, mm-hmm. and ask a couple follow-up questions that might just nudge them along. And then there's this piece that I thought, in this work, it's really intentional to slow down and to think. And so there's a synthesis piece that comes with it. And all it is, is again, something that teachers are really familiar with. It's just a two column chart. It's in a lot of comprehension books. It's in reading strategy books. It's in critical thinking. So it's just this idea of at first I thought, and now I'm thinking. So at first I think this, I I get it all out, similar to how we do with KWLs. You know, I'm thinking about all these things. This is what I know. This is what I think I know. And then after my work with my peers and after these conversations and after some readings and just listening to the perspective of others, like this is maybe where I've come to. And that might be the same. It might, you know, maybe they didn't move that day. And that's okay that everything does not need to be like this massive change, you know, that <laughs> transformation that these kids are having at nine, <laughs> 10 years old. I just think, but it could be something really subtle. I did a read aloud. There's a great book that's called Stella Brings the Family with some fourth graders. And it's about how Stella has two dads and they're having a Mother's Day party. She She's having this conflict all day at school. She's upset. And she's like, I don't know what to do. I have these two dads, you know. And so I did a chart with the kids and I just asked them, I said, what do you think makes up a family? And the kids have, you know, their their experience and their answers. Mm-hmm. A family is my mom and my dad and my brother and my dog. All kids will come up with amazing things, but some kids will kind of catch you by surprise and things like you don't anticipate, like family is about love, you know, and these big sort yeah. of conceptual understandings of what family is, but still the very practical, like this is who my family is. And then we read a book like that and we start having a conversation. And again, like this was one of those lessons where I just took myself out of the conversation completely and I just let them talk to each other and just decent myself and they started to come to this place where they're like, oh, well, I know someone who's adopted or I only have one parent, you guys. And like this is four or five months into the school year when this child feels empowered enough in their peer group to say, well, I don't have a dad, you know? And so then you watch the shift in the the right-hand column of the synthesis sheet that says, well, again, like, you know, it could be love is love. It could be a family, could be 
moms, dads, grandparents, brothers, you know, families look different. And so reading some of these, like they could be tiny, subtle changes. They could also be really big thinking. Mm. And you just are so proud of them for being able to just be in the space together that they can feel safe enough to have that conversation. I think you said something there that's really important to revisit and to sort of reemphasize, which is a lot of the work that you're guiding us through in this book, there's small steps and we need to be cautious to not expect huge epiphanies, huge dramatic life-changing moments in that setting immediately. Right. Because that's not realistic. You know, we don't even necessarily as adults go through those all the time. It takes a lot of work. So that's why these lessons don't have a time on them. You know, Mm. it's not like 40 minutes or 20 minutes. You can get these done and it's, you might need to revisit them. These are almost like a projection, not a plan, Mm -hmm. right? It's a projection of like what might happen and what you can try. I could have a conversation with you about something and I'm not going to maybe make a big move. But if I hear this is this idea of social comprehension, right? I hear it from you and your perspective and I hear it from someone else and their perspective and somebody else. And then I read a little bit and then slowly like there's small shifts. That's the most sustainable type of change, right? Mm -hmm. It's like really small steps and small shifts. And so I don't think it'll ever be like a switch that flips that quickly for somebody. And it might be. For teachers, I think it's really important to understand like when you're trying these lessons, do not look at yourself and say, oh man, they don't believe in same-sex marriage at the end of this, mm-hmm. or they're all not Democrats by the end of this conversation, <laughs> or, you know, they're all don't, they all don't think politically the same way yeah. that I do. Like that, that's not realistic. Yeah. So the authenticity is in the conversation and the discourse and you're teaching kids not to listen for compliance or for politeness, but it's actually how to help form an argument in mm-hmm. your mind. And throughout that, you know, empathy as a word yeah. is starting to sort of verge on that bu- buzzword territory. Yeah, yeah. But it's still important. Absolutely. And it still has a really important place in the classroom and in the work that you're talking about. And you've written quite a bit about empathy in the book. Explain why empathy still matters. It matters. It's Again, it's a big conceptual understanding in which there are many working parts to Mm -hmm. empathy. I mean, you've heard me say before about just reading a book by someone who doesn't look like you. And that's not because your end result is not going to be, oh, empathy. Mm -hmm. But it's you're getting a perspective from someone whom you otherwise wouldn't have heard that perspective from or that you haven't experienced. But it's more, and I think I say this in the book, it's more than just, well, I can read this book or I have this diverse shelf of books and I I have empathy. You know, it's not necessarily that. I think that we have to get proximate. I talk a lot in the book about getting proximate to, and Brian Stevenson talks about getting proximate to problems, right? If we want to change the world, we have to get proximate to the problems Mm -hmm. in the world. In social comprehension, you have to get proximate to people. Yes, I could read a book by someone who doesn't look like me that has a different perspective, but what else am I doing in my everyday life that I can get proximate to somebody who Mm -hmm. doesn't look like me, that doesn't think like me, that we're sitting in echo chambers on Twitter, right? Like my, and I'll be the first to say it, my Twitter account is a giant echo chamber. You know, I'm not following a lot of people that are completely polar opposite to what I think, and maybe I should do a better job of that. But then it's an interesting thing because my Facebook account is people who I've grown up with who think very different than sometimes like it's a very different arena, Mm -hmm. you know? And so we sit in these echo chambers all the time and I can tweet out things or I can say things and I know people will you know, hit the heart or like it or retweet it. But I don't know, like, when do I get to have the conversation then with someone who might disagree with that Mm, statement? We can delete that person or block that person pretty Mm. easily now. But when am I going to sort of have the courage to sit next to that person and say, like, why do you think that? I want to know why. And I'm going to listen to you. 
as opposed to just, you know, getting really upset about it, not listening, shutting down. <laughs> so, which I do. So, <laughs> I think that's, that's the piece about empathy. We ask kids to put themselves in other people's shoes all the time. We talk about this in upstanders. And I, I really don't think you can do that until you understand first your own identity mm-hmm. and where you're coming from. And then you start to look at another layer and that's how people see you. And then you open yourself up to see the humanity in someone else and say, mm-hmm. well, geez, they're coming from a completely different experience and identity than I am. Yeah. And that's when you start to develop empathy, right? You get proximate to the person, you get proximate to the story, you get proximate to a book. It's what you do with that. I think that's what fosters empathy. It's not just, I can read a book and put it down and I have this empathy. My thanks to Sara Ahmed for her time today. We invite you to listen to last week's special edition of the podcast where Sara shares a personal story of being the change. You can also follow Sara Ahmed on Twitter at Sara K. Ahmed. And you can also download a sample chapter from Being the Change on Heinemann.com. Plus, we invite you to check out blog.heinemann.com where we'll be posting more from Sara. We'd love for you to subscribe to the Heinemann podcast on iTunes and Google Play, where you can leave a comment or review. You can also follow Heinemann on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as our various Facebook groups. Plus, you can get a daily teacher tip right on your phone directly from Heinemann authors on the Heinemann Teacher Tip app. All this and more on Heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.